Well, I reckon there are many things in life that require our focus. And actually, one of the keys to life is balancing all the different focuses that we have. You know, things like, am I eating right? Am I exercising enough? Am I uh, living a, a balanced kind of lifestyle with my like, kind of work-life balance? Is my budget balanced? Am I spending more than I'm saving and, you know, in the red? Or am I actually putting money aside? Well, I think, actually, we all want to live this kind of a Goldilocks life. Uh, not giving things the right amount of focus. You know, not too much, not too little, but just right. And what we're going to see in tonight's letter to the Laodiceans is that there's a danger there. There's a danger of focusing on the wrong things and so actually giving our attention to the wrong things that don't actually matter. And we end up lukewarm to the things that really do matter. There's the potential that a balanced life could actually end up being a wasted life. And so my goal tonight is to uh, metaphorically raise the temperature for us tonight to help us live on fire lives for Jesus. Uh, And we're going to do that as we get into this letter to the Laodiceans. So let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for Jesus. We pray tonight that you might work in us by your spirit to see the dangers that would stop us being on fire for you and to help us live lives for your glory, centered on King Jesus, captivated by him. Help us move towards a place where we grow to love and know Jesus more tonight as we see him in your word. Amen. Okay, get your Bible open if you, if you have one on you, physical or on your phone. And we're going to start off by looking in verse 15 and see what actually is the problem in the Laodicean church. Verse 15, Jesus says to them, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. (laughs) It's a bit weird, right? What's going on there? Who who found that a little bit confusing the first time it just got read out or if you read it during the week? Just me? No one else found that confusing? Okay, there you go. Some honest people. Good. Uh, See, if you understand that like, you know, hot and cold are opposites, then it seems like Jesus is saying, I would rather that you be totally for me or totally against me, but not lukewarm in the middle. But I don't think that's what he's saying here, because that doesn't really make sense. Why would Jesus want us to be um, uh, totally against him rather than lukewarm? It doesn't really make sense of what we know about how we respond to Jesus in the Bible. And I think there are two clues that help us to work out what he's saying. There's a geographical clue and a textual clue to work this out. So first, the geographical clue. Here's Laodicea in the region of Asia Minor. You can see it down there, bottom right. And if you zoom in again, next map, here's a zoom in of the region. And you can see the two closest cities are the city Hierapolis and the city Colossae. Right? And Hierapolis, this is kind of the Rotorua of the uh, Asia Minor region. It had heaps of hot springs and these kind of mineral hot springs that uh, had healing properties. And people would travel to um, Rotorua, they traveled to Hierapolis to kind of bathe in the hot springs and enjoy the kind of medicinal purposes, or so they thought. Um, and, and, and that was Hierapolis. And, and Colossae, you can see, is right next to the, the Lycus River. And of course, you know, it's built on a river. It's got this cold, refreshing, great water source. 
Now, Laodicea doesn't have its own water source. And archaeologists found aqueducts traveling from Hierapolis down to Laodicea and also from the river to the city. And this is about five kilometers in the, the kind of geography of the region. And by the time the water from Hierapolis, the springs, got to Laodicea, it was kind of tepid and warm. And, you know, you'd have a bath in it, but it's kind of like, you know when you stay in the bath too long and it's just like a bit warm and not that nice? It's that, it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, or... From Colossae, the water coming from the river, it would heat up during the day with the sun and it would get to Laodicea. And again, it would just be kind of like lukewarm, not useful, not refreshing or not hot. It's like when you leave your water bottle in the car on a sunny day and then you go to have a swig and it's just like tepid and gross. Has anyone done that? Yeah, it's not a good time. You want to spit it out. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I wish you were hot. That'd be good. That'd be useful. Or I wish you were cold and refreshing. That'd be good. That'd be useful. But lukewarm is just kind of useless. And it's, it's, it's unappealing. It's unpalatable. It's only good for spitting out. There's the geographical clue. And second, the textual clue. Look in verse 14 how Jesus introduces himself. Often in the letters to the churches, uh, each introduction of Jesus actually points either to the thing that he's about to encourage them about or rebuke them for. And the letter to the later scenes, they don't get any encouragement. It's all bad news from Jesus. And so I take it here, Jesus calls himself the faithful and the true witness. He calls himself the amen, which just means truly. He's, he says, I'm true twice. That kind of, I'm a true witness. He's, he's doubling down on it. And I take it as we get into the letter, the reason that the Laodicean church are lukewarm or useless is because they're not actually reaching out to those around them as faithful and true witnesses. What is it that's causing the Laodiceans and could cause us to be useless? I think there's two things in the passage. There's wealth and idolatry. We're going to deal with both first in your outlines. We're going to look at wealth. We're going to look at the danger, and then we're going to look at the solution. And then idolatry, danger, and solution. If you're taking notes, the outline's blank, so there's your outline. <laughs> look at what Jesus has to say to them, starting in verse 17. He says, For you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, what a slam from Jesus on the Laodiceans. You wouldn't want to receive that in a text or an email or a letter, would you? Do you see what Jesus is highlighting here for them? It's the danger of material wealth which has made these Christians feel like they don't need anything else. They don't need Jesus. They've got it all. They're self-sufficient. And I don't think they would have headed in that direction intentionally, away from Jesus. But over time, as they accumulated more and more possessions, more and more wealth, they slowly started to think that they needed Jesus less and less. The problem isn't their wealth, necessarily. The Bible doesn't say that having wealth is a sin. But it's what their wealth has done to them. The way that their wealth has caused them to take their faith and focus off Jesus. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes the negative effect of wealth. He says, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, when really it's finding its place in him. Do you see what he's getting at there? The more wealth you have, the more possessions you accumulate, the more stuff you get, the more this world starts to feel like home. You start to feel like you've made it. The more comfortable you become, each pay rise brings with it a whole new desire for possessions. 
And I reckon this is a particular danger for us tonight. Lots of us in this room are young working professionals or at uni studying to get a degree so that we can go and get a job. And these jobs are going to pay huge amounts of money. And we need to think rightly about wealth and how God calls us to use our wealth so that we don't fall into the trap that the later scenes did, slowly taking their focus off Jesus. In fact, across Auckland, I looked up the stats, New Zealand has the fourth largest median wealth in the world. Where the, fourth, the average adult has the fourth highest amount of income and wealth across our globe. You might not think of yourself as rich, but if you've got a car and a smartphone, a laptop and a place to live, you are in the top percent of all people, not just at the moment, but throughout the history of the world. And our culture is obsessed with wealth, isn't it? Um, think back to the last party you were at, the last time you went out with mates. Um, how long did it take for topics like career aspirations or housing prices or the side hustle that someone's starting or investment opportunities or crypto or any of those things to come up? Our culture is obsessed with gaining wealth. And in fact, a huge percentage of people have actually moved to Auckland from you know, places in the Pacific or the subcontinent of Asia in order to get wealth, to get a degree, to get wealth, to, to live the dream life here in Auckland. But see, according to Jesus, that wealth has actually blinded us to a deeper spiritual problem. We think we don't need anything, but what does Jesus say? That if you live that way, that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. These are harsh words, but we need to take Jesus seriously here in his warning. If you're here this morning and you don't yet trust Jesus, you don't yet know him, can I ask you, where, where, what, what is it that you put your hope in? How would you finish this sentence? My life would be so much better if only... Dot, dot, dot. What would you write down? What are you thinking right now? See, whatever you answer with, that's what you've put your hope in. And the thing about wealth is, it seems like a good bet. Wealth seems like it covers a lot of options and gives you a lot of security. See, you know, you can put aside some money so that if something goes wrong, you've got some aside to cover you. Wealth brings security, it brings housing, it brings education, it brings everything that we think we need. But actually, it's just the illusion. It's the illusion of security and control. And in your life, the, you know, the stock market could crash, the banking, there could be a financial collapse, you could get injured or even die, or the relationship that you're in could end. And in those moments, where's your wealth? It actually doesn't bring you the security that you're chasing for. It actually won't be able to help you. You need something more, something better to put your hope in. See, Jesus, in fact, describes the dangers of wealth in Mark 4 in the parable of the good sower. Listen to what he says. He says in Mark 4, 18 and 19, talking about different responses to people that hear the gospel. He says, Others are like seed sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. See, Jesus is describing the later scenes here in a sense, isn't he? The worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth that tries to distract us and take us away from putting our focus on Jesus. As Christians, we actually need to think counterculturally about our wealth. 
And I think there are two dangers here that Christians have taken in the past. The first is if you've been around at church for any length of time, you will have heard churches that preach that Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy and have it all now. And if you're faithful to him, then he'll bless you with everything. But that kind of teaching is completely counter to how Jesus talks about wealth and discipleship in the Bible. The prosperity gospel, this idea that you can have it all now, it takes our spiritual blessings in Christ and our future hope of a new creation in the future and tries to bring it into this physical, material blessings now. But it's backwards. Jesus, often when he's talking about wealth, is warning us of the dangers of wealth, the deceitfulness of wealth. That's the prosperity gospel. And it's just kind of the way that our culture thinks with Christian kind of clothes on. And it's a danger, and it's not what Jesus actually teaches. But there's another idea which at first glance seems more helpful, more Christian, and it identifies the potential danger of wealth and says, run from it. Give as much away as you can. Sell all your stuff. Go and live in a monastery. People call this the the poverty gospel. Um, But both dangers, uh, while they might rightly identify some of the danger there, the poverty gospel, wealth is dangerous, it misidentifies the solution. See, Jesus doesn't say wealth is a sin. He calls us to view our wealth rightly. And he calls us in so many different places to use our wealth for him. The language that the Bible gives us is called stewardship. That what you have is from God, not for you, but for him. To make much of Jesus, to live for his glory. And that's kind of where we sit today, isn't it? We've all got money and possessions and wealth to some degree. Even if you're at uni, you're, you sit in the kind of top percentage of the world. And we know that those things are, are dangerous, that they have this potential to draw us away from Jesus, to help it, to cause us to lose our focus. But we also have the ability to be stewards for Jesus, for his kingdom, the ability to use the resources that he's given us for his glory. And so we need to think rightly. Come and let's see what Jesus has to say. Here's the solution, verse 18. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness not exposed. And ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. The solution to the danger of wealth is twofold. It's first to recognize our greatest need and second to recognize the greatest kingdom. So first, our greatest need. Here's the first solution to the danger of wealth. See, Laodicea, that was a rich city. They had a wealthy kind of textiles industry and a medical school which produced this eye salve. And you can see Jesus, as he references things to them, there would have been things in their context which they would have heard and gone, oh, are you talking about our medical school, our salve, being able to see, being dressed? But the people of that city were so clueless about their spiritual need. Their physical riches got in the way of seeing their greatest need. But Jesus says, come and buy from me that you might be truly rich. Come and get clothed by me. Let me dress you. Come to me that you might see properly, see with eyes of faith the realities of this world, not just the physical. See, Jesus is saying here that he and he alone is the solution to their greatest need. It's, it's the gospel. In fact, you know, ironically here, buying things from Jesus is completely free. You can't purchase them. They come with no cost for us. 
See, the things that Jesus invites them to buy are common images used throughout Scripture to talk about the act of salvation and the new life that we have in Jesus. <coughs> See, 2 Corinthians 8 9 says that Jesus became poor, although he was rich, became poor, so that in his poverty we might have riches. He's talking about relationship with the God of the universe there. Or in Revelation 7 14. You, we're going to look at that in a few weeks. It talks about the white robes that Christians now have. And it's a metaphor for the saving work of Jesus, that in Christ, he dresses us with white robes. And so we're pure and holy and, and set apart and washed clean, our sin dealt with by Jesus. It says that they have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Or in John eight twelve, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of eternal life. So he's saying there, without me, you can't see properly, but come to me and you might have the light of eternal life. See, our greatest need in this world isn't wealth or anything that money can buy. It's the reality that because of our sin, our brokenness, we've been cut off from the God of the universe. And that only Jesus can meet that need if we come and buy from him, if we come and put our trust in him and live for him. See, my parents at the moment are missionaries overseas in Nepal, one of the poorest countries in the world. And uh, I was reflecting on this the other day, and I was like, if I put up a photo for you, I meant to get a photo, but I didn't get a photo. If I put up a photo for you of these, the, these poorest Christians sitting on the floor, they gather in this building on the floor, hundreds of them packed into this small building, versus a photo of the people walking around in the Auckland CBD. See, who would you say has got the greater need? If you look just physically, you'd say, wow, those people, they have nothing. Those, those poor Christians. But if we see the world rightly, we'll see that our greatest need is not physical, but spiritual. And once we see that, our greatest need is a spiritual need, we can see that the greatest kingdom is actually then not our kingdom, but Jesus's. See, we'll see our wealth clearly for what it is. Not something that we can put our security in, but a tool to be used to steward what God's given us for his glory. Not something to meet our needs, but a tool just to be used to meet others' needs and serve them in love. To be on about not growing the kingdom of me, but the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. To help more people find life-giving hope in the gospel. See, what's the better kingdom to invest in? The kingdom of me or the kingdom of God? It's the kingdom of God, isn't it? That's the encouragement for us this, tonight. And so can I ask you, whose kingdom are you focused on growing? Jesus's or yours? The, the, the warning and the encouragement for us tonight is to not let wealth suck us in and deceive us and cause us to live for the things of this world, but to invest in what will last, that things that will bring eternal joy and peace and security and satisfaction. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find this hard. It's easy to look at friends, neighbors, out in our city, walking around, family, and to want what they have. To forget to hold out the life-giving message of the gospel, because if I'm honest... I'm actually sometimes a little bit jealous of what they have. Uh, to be honest, sometimes their lives look pretty good. And, and when I give generously to things, sometimes there's this little pang in me that says, oh, it means you won't get to have as nice a holiday or get a car or a nicer house or whatever, whatever that thing is for you, that other people that you see, that they don't have to think about it because they're not giving to anything else. 
you know, this week it's been such a blessing, though, to see our church give and partner in the gospel to, towards getting a building. You might not know this, but Uni Church is part of a group of three campuses of EV. And, and together as a church family, we've been able to raise $1.2 million. How cool was that to hear that earlier, yeah? Do you know that 73% of our church, of the adult members, gave towards this project? That's amazing. So many of us here in this room gave to something that we're not going to meet in regularly. That's amazing. And, and that we raised that kind of money in a couple of weeks. It's crazy. Why would we do that? Because we're kingdom focused. It's because we're convinced that Jesus is the king and life is found in him. And his kingdom is the one that we want to live for. See, the hub is just a tool. It's just a building. It's a wise decision. and We think it's a key next step, and we're excited about it. But we're not on about buildings. We're on about making much of Jesus, being captivated by him. It's been so encouraging to be part of that. In fact, you know, I just started pastoring here this year, and it's been such an encouragement for me to see how God's been at work among us, helping us to be generous in a whole bunch of different ways. But... If you're anything like me, again, we need to hear the encouragement of these words. As a positive, an encouragement. As a negative, the rebuke. I found myself, as I was thinking through how to give, continually coming up with reasons to justify giving a little bit less. Do you guys, did you guys do that? Anyone else do that? I found it was like, it's been a, for, for our family, we just had a, a third little baby, and we found it's been a hassle to try and get around everywhere in just one car. And so we were talking about me getting a motorbike, but as we looked at the budget, we kind of worked out, hey, for us to give generously to this, we actually can't afford that right now. And it stung a little bit. And it was so easy to justify and say, well, help me get around and do this and do that. And, you know, that's unique to my situation and my budget. I'm not saying anything about anyone else there. But these words have been such a fuel to the fire of generosity in my life this week. To be reminded of the spiritual realities of Jesus and his kingdom. To see that without Jesus, we're wretched, pitiful, poor, naked, and blind. And to look out for the deceitfulness of wealth and the way that it distracts us and and can take us away from living for Jesus. So can I encourage you, whatever resources you have, use them to steward Jesus' kingdom, not your own. Use your time and money and energy towards those purposes. That's the first danger and the first solution. That we might use our, our... our resources for that. But maybe for you, as you've heard this, it's actually for you been a long time since you've thought about the impact of your resources, of your money, of your time, your energy on your heart. See, Jesus says that uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you might have had your conscience pricked today as we've been talking about this. And I want to encourage you, go home and have have a proper conversation with God. Spend some time with him. Have an honest conversation about the things that you value, where your heart is. Ask him to change you and grow you and to work in you. Wealth can be so dangerous in stopping us being useful for Jesus. But when we see it rightly, it can be such a tool to steward for God's glory. The solution is to see that the greatest need that people have is spiritual and the greatest kingdom to invest in is Jesus's, not mine. That's the first one. And the second danger that we're going to look at tonight is idolatry. This one will be much quicker. We've done all the groundwork together, so we'll get into it. If you're new to church and the word idolatry sounds like some weird kind of religious 
word to you. Here's a simple definition of idolatry. It's on screen. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope, happiness, significance, and security. See, although this passage, it doesn't actually use the word idolatry anywhere, it's the idea that sits behind a lot of the words. The idea of needing nothing in verse 17. It's that I'm trusting, what am I trusting for my hope, happiness, significance, and security? My wealth. I don't need anything else. I've got money. See, what's your hope in? Have you placed it in the right place? What are the things that you dream about, that you live for, that you want to um, turn to, to to have a good life? The things that you'd be desperate if you didn't have. The things that you form an identity and put your security in. Well, that's what is an idol for you. And, and the phrase here, that phrase that needing nothing in verse 17, it's actually a quote from the book of Hosea. And this will show us just how serious the problem is for them. See, Hosea 12 verse 8 says this, Ephraim thinks, Ephraim is just another name for God's people, says, how rich I have become. I made it all myself in all my earnings. No one can find any iniquity in me that I can be punished for. See, the big problem of God's people in the book of Hosea is idolatry. There's been lots of, throughout the last 12 chapters leading up to this point, Hosea's been speaking to the people, trying to show them in vivid imagery just how awful it is that they've turned away from the one true living God and are living for other things. And in fact, he goes on to talk about the coming judgment that will come on them for their rejection and rebellion against their God. And what we see in the book is that it's not only that they are chasing after other idols, but it's that their idols are the things that have made them rich. By taking their focus off God and living for other things, they've become super rich. And so the irony is that the people say, no one can find any iniquity, any sin in me, when that's completely wrong. It's only evil, it's only sin, it's only the wrong thing that has brought about their wealth. And Jesus takes that story from Hosea in the Old Testament and applies it to the Laodiceans. And he helps us see that the surface issue is their wealth, but under the surface, deep down, this is actually an issue of idolatry. Particularly the idolatry of self. See, depending on your cultural background, anthropologists tell us you would have grown up with one of three worldviews. As I say them, have a think, which one do you feel like most applies to you? There's the guilt-innocence worldview, where I do things that um, I, uh, I perceive as good, and I don't do things because I perceive them as wrong. This is kind of the um, predominant view that a lot of the people in the West had, and it's this kind of, the idea is the inner lawyer, stopping me doing the wrong thing. Um, the next one is the shame-honor worldview. See, this is kind of bigger in uh, Eastern cultures, and it centers on kind of community expectations. You, I do things that are going to bring me honor in the eyes of others, and I don't do things which will be shameful. Uh, the idea there is the inner grandmother saying, you know, don't bring dishonor on the family, kind of Mulan style. Um, <laughs> and the third one is a fear power worldview. This is bigger in uh, some African and Asian countries. And it's the kind of idea there's a spirit world out there that I, if I can just access it, then I don't have to fear those things, but I can control them and, and get power from them. And so I give sacrifices or I do things like that in order to control the spirit world. The idea there is the inner demon to not be afraid of, but to try and control and harness their power. So those are the three kind of worldviews the anthropologists have. 
kind of identified in our culture. But more and more in the West, we're moving away from whatever one you came from to what we're now calling a pleasure-pain worldview. See, how do you work out what to do with your life? Well, do things that will bring you pleasure and don't do things that will bring you pain. That's the kind of the, the we're moving away from other worlds towards this. See, what do we do? We do things that make us feel good, make us feel happy. We seek pleasure and we minimize pain. That's the kind of the worldview that we're living in at the moment. But do you see, um, as our culture grows in that, do you see how self-centered an approach to life that can be? That it takes God completely out of the equation. My life's all about me and what I think is going to make me happy. In fact, there's almost an arrogance there to say, I don't want to listen to the God who made me. I know better than he does. To, to live that way, it's to trust ourselves above God for our own hope, happiness, significance, and security. It's this idol of self that's everywhere around us. And, and to live that way leads to God doing exactly what we ask. We push him to the side out of our lives and, and we say, we don't want you in the equation. He says, all right, I won't be in the equation. You have no future with me. It's the idolatry of the self that is all around us. And what's the antidote? What does Jesus say that's going to protect us from falling into that danger? See what he says in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Instead of being self-focused, Jesus offers us something so much better, to be focused on him, to come to him to find peace and security and hope and joy, to to find it in his love in relationship with him, in something that can never be taken away from us. See, wealth just brings the illusion of control. Idolatry of the self just leads to us actually collapsing in on ourselves when things go wrong. But to trust in Jesus, to have a relationship with him, that's the antidote to idolatry. See, Jesus offers them this rebuke in love, doesn't he? He says, as many as I love, I rebuke. His hope for the Laodiceans and for us if we've fallen into this is to repent, to turn back to him, to come and find life in him again. And the language here, it's so relational, isn't it? He's waiting at the door. He wants to come in and eat with you. In Middle Eastern culture, sharing a meal like this was one of the deepest signs of intimacy. You did it with your closest friends, your allies. It's why Jesus is ridiculed and attacked so many times in the Gospels because of the people that he eats with. It was a, it's a big deal. See, this is an invitation from Jesus to turn back from living for the idolatry of self, whether it's wealth or self or anything else that we might be putting our trust in, and to find true joy again in relationship with him. To move from being self-focused to saviour-focused. See, unless we see that that relationship with Jesus is far better than anything that this life can offer us, we'll keep being tempted. We'll keep losing our focus and putting it on other things. And we'll miss out of the wonder that comes from living for Jesus. See, the other day I was hanging out with my kids and I was um, you know, doing emails on my phone. Actually, I was probably uh, scrolling Instagram or something, to be honest. Uh, and I wasn't really paying attention to them. And Reuben, my son, my four-year-old, came up to me and he said, Dad, I really want to play with you. Can we go and play? 
And I just, it just hit me in that moment. I was like, I'd been focusing on the wrong things and missing out on this awesome opportunity right in front of me. See, we can do that with Jesus. We can push him to the side. We can give our focus to other things and miss out on the best thing that's right in front of us. The God of the universe that wants to know us and have relationship with us. See, for some of us, we find it so hard to be useful for Jesus, to be a witness on mission for him, because we've been more influenced by the culture around us than we have by relationship with Jesus. See, you look at our lives, we've got the same hopes and dreams and jobs and everything. It just looks identical to those that don't yet know Jesus. And Jesus has just become something that's been tacked onto the side of our lives. And it means when we go to share about him, we find ourselves struggling to articulate it. We, we go to talk about Jesus with our not yet believing friends, and we're not actually sure what's so different between what we have and what they have. See, is that you this morning? Have you bought into the lie that Jesus is an optional extra, something you can just kind of tack on to the side of your life? No, Jesus says, come back to me. Live your life centered on me. Jesus says this morning and tonight to act quickly because if you wait too long, he might not be at the door when you open it. See, he won't tolerate a lukewarm and useless faith. There's a time coming when if you pushed him out into the cold, it'll be too late. So take the invitation tonight to renew your relationship with Jesus, to rekindle the love you have for him. See, Jesus doesn't want you to have a balanced life with lots of focuses and actually be useless. He wants you to have a useful life with one main focus, living for him, knowing him, loving him. See, imagine coming for Jesus on the last day and you've, you've had this balanced life. You have all these different things that are so good in your life and you come before him and all he can do is vomit you out, spit you out, because you're so unpalatable to him, because you've spent your life rejecting him, ignoring him, pushing him to the periphery. See, don't be like that. That's the warning, isn't it, in this passage? Don't reject Jesus. I think the invitation to eat with Jesus points us forward to the great wedding feast, wedding feast of the Lamb in chapter 19. We're going to get there in a few weeks in the Revelation series. And it's kind of the climax of the book, this moment. It's described as a wedding feast. And it's this celebration, this intimacy, this fellowship with Jesus for eternity, with his people, this, this party. It's this, this, this description of life with the God who made us. See, that's what's on offer from Jesus. Life with him for eternity. And it doesn't just start there. It starts now. See, look at Jesus' promise in verse 21 at the end. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. There's a responsibility, a privilege that no earthly riches could compare with and no earthly riches could ever buy. Eternity with Jesus. That's our hope. That's our joy. That's what we're looking forward to. Let's be a church that fixes our eyes for Jesus and lives for his kingdom, for his glory, for relationship with him. Let's pray, yeah? Father God, we're so thankful for King Jesus. He's so worth living for, worth loving. Nothing in this world even comes close. 
Nothing in this world will bring us security or joy or peace. Nothing in this world is worth centering our lives on other than King Jesus. We pray that you might guard our hearts from shifting focus. We pray that you might help us to see our wealth not as something which draws us away from you, but which we can use for you for your glory. We pray that you might help us to be a church that is focused on building Jesus' kingdom, not our own. We pray that you might help us to live on mission for you, useful for you, because we love you. Thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.